Well, I'm always impressed when uh, the kids get up here and they do singing and hand motions. Because when I was a kid, I could either do singing or I could do hand motions, but I could never do both. I'm not sure how that worked. I still can't do it, by the way. Uh, so there's an interesting phenomenon that's happened to me recently that hasn't happened in the 30-plus years that I've been at Melanie Park. And that is, on multiple occasions, in fact, this morning I met Alex and his wife, Mark and his wife, both of them who told me they've been coming for at least a month, four or five weeks, and I'm sitting here telling you right now, I've never seen these people in my life. (laughs) But I am so glad to meet folks, and here's what I want to ask you to do. So many times uh, on a Sunday morning after we spend time together, Um, I don't have a chance to meet people before they leave. And I'm not going to go stand at the door and shake your hand as you're leaving. Roger used to call that the glorification of the worm. So I'm not doing that. But I do want to get to know folks that I haven't had the privilege to meet, like Alex and his wife and Mark and his wife. And so let's make sure that we linger when we spend time together on Sunday. And if you... uh, uh, haven't met folks, then go engage with them. And, and just me personally, I would love for folks who are new to come and introduce yourselves because it's a privilege to meet you when we do spend that time together. So um, I look forward to that. Well, this morning, uh, we're going to continue what Kerry started last week. He identified really God's divining purpose for our lives in Romans 12, 1 and 2 and specifically. So let me read that again. Romans 12, chapter Or chapter 12, verse 1 says, Therefore, I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice, acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, so that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. So to state that simply, our purpose in life is to be a living sacrifice for God, to the praise and glory of His name. Now, even though that's stated simply, we all know it is a challenge to fulfill because being a living sacrifice requires a daily surrender, giving preference to God's will over my own agenda. As we learn back in Romans chapter 6, verse 13, we are learning to not present our bodies as instruments of unrighteousness, but to present ourselves as instruments of righteousness. Living a life that is devoted for fulfilling God's divinely ordained purpose for our lives. No longer being conformed to this world, but being transformed by the renewing of our mind. It's really the difference between being a cookie cutter person or a completely new creation. Let me tell you the difference. Being conformed to this world is like taking the pattern of the world's lifestyles and creating a mold. And then taking that mold and taking your life and pressing your life into that mold so that it conforms to the ways in which the world lives around us. And what that results in is a life that looks very much like everyone else around you. That's what it means to be conformed to this world. But being transformed is something completely different. 
It's a new creation. In fact, the Greek word that's used in that passage is where we get our word metamorphosis. So think of caterpillar turning into butterfly, where one stage is radically different than the other, which is the way it should be for us as Christians. We are transformed. 2 Corinthians 5.17 says we are a new creation in Christ. Old things have gone, and behold, new things have come. So that who we are in Christ is radically different than who we were apart from Christ. Our purpose is to become everything God has created us to be. Empowered by God's Spirit, surrendering to God's will, to the praise and glory of His name. It's simple, but it's not easy. In fact, I would go as far as to say, in many cases, it's impossible. Because fulfilling God's purpose in our life really takes a supernatural obedience. In other words, the the only way to live out God's purpose in our life is to rely on God's Spirit who is living within us. This morning, we're going to begin to examine what it looks like to put that purpose that uh, Carrie laid out for us last week, what it means to, to put that purpose into practice. Based on all that God has done, this is what we are called to do, not by our own strength, but through daily surrender. Learning to rely on God's power as we trust in Him with all of our heart, with all of our mind, with all of our strength. So before we look at that together, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we are really grateful to be together. We know that the time of fellowship with one another is rich. It's deeply meaningful. In fact, it's life-transforming. We really can't become everything that you've created us to be outside of Christian community. That's because you designed it to be that way, for us to live interdependent lives, growing closer to you as we grow closer to one another. So Lord, would you allow our time together this morning to increasingly transform our lives, to be increasingly more and more like Jesus. Lord, we pray this in your name. Amen. All right, if you would, turn to Romans chapter 12. And let's pick up where Carrie left off last in verse 9. Romans chapter 12, verse 9. It said, let love be without hypocrisy. Abhor what is evil, cling to what is good. Be devoted to one another in brotherly love. Give preference to one another in honor. Not lagging behind in diligence, fervent in spirit, serving the Lord, rejoicing in hope, persevering in tribulation, devoted to prayer, contributing to the needs of the saints, practicing hospitality. Now, there's a lot there in those few verses, isn't there? But this is what Paul does. He begins by instructing us on how we are related to one another. This is the way that community should look like within the household of faith. And since we are a living sacrifice, Paul calls us to live a sacrificial love. This is a love that is given to others without expecting anything in return. 
Paul says it's not hypocritical where our affection is conditional, where I only love you if it somehow benefits me. That's hypocritical. That's not the love that we are called to. Instead, a truly transformed life considers the needs of others is more important than their own. Which doesn't mean that you love everyone and everything no matter what. This spiritual, this sacrificial love has to have a spiritual discernment. That's why Paul says, abhor what is evil and cling to what is good. Discernment is how you tell the difference between the two. So instead of going along with the crowd, a discerning love refuses to embrace worldly values. It is a person who aligns their life with the truth of God's Word. Because God's Word is where God's will is revealed. And so we are called to live that transformed love, rejecting worldly values and clinging to biblical truth. Paul says we are to be devoted to one another in a brotherly love. When he says that, he's talking about the love that exists, that, that unconditional love that exists within the context of a family. And so what that tells us is that when we gather together, when we spend time with each other, we are called to much more than just friendships and acquaintances with one another. We are called to a deep and abiding and a warm affection of a family love between one another. We're called to give preference to, to the relationships that we have within our church family. That's why the writer of Hebrews tells us, do not forsake your gathering together, as is the habit of some. But instead, consider how to stimulate each other towards love and good deeds, and even more as the day draws near. We were created for Christian community, designed to live interdependent lives. Our spiritual growth flows out of our relationships with one another. In fact, I believe that Christian community is where God does some of his most transforming work. That's why Paul calls us repeatedly to be devoted to one another. He wants us to protect the priority of our relationships with each other. Just like we protect the relationships that we have within our own families, right? So, just like a family, we don't walk away when things get hard. Like a loving family, we have conversations to seek clarity. And we don't make assumptions about someone else's motives without talking to them. And we don't talk about and, and criticize people behind their back. We give each other the benefit of the doubt. We want the highest good for the other person. We show respect and we show value to one another, even when we don't completely disagree or completely agree with each other, right? That's what, that's what loving families do. And as a church family, that's what we should do as well. And to be that kind of a family, man, we got to have lots of and lots of grace. Your devotion must not, it cannot depend on everyone doing what you think is right. 
Instead, we strive to protect unity even in the midst of our diversity. Verse 11, Paul says that our devotion should be marked by diligence, fervent in spirit, serving the Lord. In other words, when we serve the Lord, we do so by serving each other. And by condemning one another, we bring dishonor to God as well. Again, think about it in terms of a family. God is our Father. We are His children, brothers and sisters in Christ. And just like in any family, when the kids are rebelling, when they don't get along, when they're bitter and angry, it brings dishonor to the parents. And when they're warm and affectionate, caring and compassionate towards one another, it brings their parents honor. Well, in the very same way, how we relate to one another either brings honor or disgrace to God, our Heavenly Father. So please don't miss that. This is significant. Our relationships with one another influence God's reputation in the world. That's a big deal. So what that tells me is that we cannot rely on our own strength to pull this off. We are way, and I'll just speak for myself, I am way too selfish and sinful on my own. Okay, I don't know about you, maybe that's just me. But we can't rely on ourselves to to pull this kind of love off. We have to rely on the Spirit at work within us because we do not possess that power on our own. I would say it this way, our love tank is like a thimble. God's love is like an ocean. And so which one are you going to draw from? You see, our love for one another has to be an overflow of God's love being poured out into us. Because if that's not the source, then we're going to very quickly run dry. We need to be devoted to one another because we need each other. Remember, I've said this several times where Jesus made the promise that in this world we will have tribulation, we will have trouble, we will have struggle. It's a part of life in a sin-cursed world. So Paul, knowing that's true, says we need to struggle together. We need to stand with one another. Because here's what happens. Now listen to this. This is what happens when we fulfill that commandment to live in that kind of relationship with one another. When we have that kind of community, then our joy is magnified when it is shared within the family of God. And here's the other thing. Our burden is made lighter when others help carry the load within that same family of God. So here's what happens. Community makes good things better and hard things easier. Doesn't it make sense that that's the way God would design it? So pray for one another. And, And as you do, let me encourage you to ask the Lord how you might be an answer to that prayer. Because sometimes I feel like we pray to relinquish our own responsibility, right? I've got a prayer list, I work through my list, and then I move on. But I think what Paul's telling us here is pray for one another and pause long enough to consider how you might be the answer to that prayer for someone else. Pray to see if there's something God wants you to do. And it may be as simple as inviting them into your home. Christian hospitality should be the trademark of Christian community. 
by sharing a meal with someone, it tells them that they belong, that they literally have a seat at your table. It communicates value and worth. It creates intimacy. Faithfulness within the family of God is the foundation of a truly transformed life. If we can't do this well, then we just need to forget everything else that's stacked on top of it. Because this is the foundation of the transformed life that we are called to live. But let's look how he continues in verse 14. Uh, Romans chapter 12, verse 14 says this. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. Be of the same mind toward one another. Do not be haughty in mind, but associate with the lowly. Do not be wise in your own estimation. So it's important to see that there's a transition here. Okay, Paul is moving from the foundation of that family love within the community of Christ to now the love of those who are outside the household of faith. And this is where it gets into that supernatural kind of love, right? Because Paul just said, bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. And what Paul is saying here is an echo of what Jesus taught in his ministry as well. Matthew chapter 5, verse 43, this is what Jesus said. He says, you've heard it said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies. And pray for those who persecute you. So clearly, what we're talking about here is a Jesus-level love. And no one in this room possesses that kind of love on their own. When Paul tells us to, to bless those who persecute us, that word bless in the original language means to, to speak well of. Okay? It's where we get our English word eulogy. A eulogy is what you hear when you go to a funeral, right? Okay, so think about that. Think about the last time you went to a funeral. Have you ever heard someone stand up at a funeral and talk about all the worst attributes of the person who just died? Is that what happens? No, typically, no matter what kind of life they lived, you hear only their best attributes and you just overlook their shortcomings, right? Well, that's precisely how Paul is instructing us to relate to our enemies. Let's be honest. This is not what we naturally do. This doesn't happen in our own strength. When someone makes our life miserable, what do we want to do? We want to return the favor, right? When they do something offensive, we counter with our own criticism. When they slap us in the face, we stab them in the back. But Paul tells us, bless and do not curse. Find something redeeming instead of looking for things to condemn. He says, bless and do not curse. Where blessing is considering a way to bring about someone's highest good, a curse is trying to wish the greatest harm to come upon them. It's wishing the worst for someone else. Let me make a confession for you on this particular topic when uh, Chris Beard betrayed my beloved university not too long ago, 
to go to the evil empire. I think you know what I'm talking about. There was a lot of cursing going on in my heart, right? You can ask HUD, right, HUD? I mean, a lot of cursing going on. And I use that as a silly example because good grief, it's just sports. Who cares, right? But, but it does matter when we have that same kind of attitude towards those who hurt us. Paul says, bless and do not curse. Do not become bittered and, and, and angry towards someone who has caused a difficulty in your life. Because here's why. And the Bible's clear about this. When we hold on to that bitterness and angry towards the offense of someone else, it ends up hurting us worse than it hurts them. I've heard it described this way, that it's like choosing to drink poison and hoping that the other person dies. That's what it's like to hold on to, to bitterness and anger. But Paul wants to, to see something bigger, something bigger than our own personal offense. Because remember, these are people outside the household of faith. And if Paul was talking about how we relate to one another as brothers and sisters in Christ, his instructions would look completely different. He, he might point to Matthew chapter 5, verse 23, where Jesus says, Therefore, if you're presenting your offering at the altar, and there remember that your brother has something against you. Again, see there, it's your brother. And apparently, in this case, you've caused the offense. He says, leave your offering before the altar. Go, be reconciled to your brother. And then come present your offering. In Matthew chapter 18, verse 15, we see something similar, but I want you to notice how it's flipped. The first example was that you've been the cause of the offense. In this example, it says, if your brother sins, so now he's the cause, go and show his fault in private. And if he listens, you've won a brother. I want you to notice that within the household of faith, the goal is to seek reconciliation. Whether you've sinned against someone or someone has sinned against you. Unity, from a biblical perspective, within the body of Christ is so important that you are always required to make the first move, no matter who's at fault. Reconciliation is the key. God calls us to seek reconciliation, no matter who's at fault. But in Romans, in our passage this morning, Paul is talking about how we relate to those who do not have the Spirit of God directing them towards what is right and what is good. So it is, instead of desiring for that person to be reconciled to you, the desire here is for them to be reconciled to God. The only question is, will they see Jesus in you? Will they see what it looks like to give a sacrificial love? Peter describes it this way in 1 Peter chapter 2. Listen to this. He says, For you have been called for this purpose. Since Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example for you to follow in his steps, who, who committed no sin, nor was any deceit found in his mouth, and while being reviled, he did not revile in return. While suffering, he uttered no threats but kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. See, Jesus didn't 
withdraw from those who had hurt him. In fact, he drew near in order to show his mercy and grace. The Bible says that he wept with those who wept and he rejoiced with those who rejoiced. And we apply that within the context of the family of God in which it does apply. But in this context of our scripture, it's talking about how we relate to unbelievers. That we enter into their world and we weep when they weep. And we rejoice when they rejoice. You see, Jesus didn't pridefully seek revenge or desire harm to those who have hurt them. Jesus knew that hurting people are the ones who hurt people. And those are the ones he came to heal. And may we never forget, may we never forget how Jesus has had mercy on us when we rebelled against him. And so how arrogant, how arrogant would it be for us to withhold something from others that we have so freely received from him? Jesus makes that point in what I believe to be a very powerful parable. It's in Matthew chapter 18. Listen to what it says beginning in verse 21. It says, Then Peter came and said to him, Lord, how often shall my brother sin against me and I forgive him? Up to seven times? And Jesus said to him, I do not say to you up to seven times, but up to 70 times seven. For this reason, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his slave. When he had begun to settle them, one who owed him 10,000 talents was brought to him. And I believe, if I remember correctly, that's about uh, a year or two's worth salary. Okay, It's a big sum of money. He says, he owed him 10,000 talents, but since he did not have the means to repay, his Lord commanded him to be sold along with his wife and children and all that he had and repayment to be made. So the slave fell on the ground, prostrated himself before him and saying, have patience with me and I will repay you everything. And the Lord of that slave felt compassion and released him and forgave his debt. The truth of the matter is, is that he could have never repaid him unless he was forgiven that debt, which is exactly what he did. But that slave went out and found one of his fellow slaves who owed him a hundred denarii, which, by the way, is one day's wage. And he seized him and began to choke him, saying, Pay back what you owe. So his fellow slave fell to the ground and began to plead with him, saying, Have patience with me, and I will repay you. Sound familiar? He was unwilling. And went and threw him in prison until he should pay back what he owed. So when his fellow slaves saw what had happened, they were deeply grieved and came and reported it to their Lord, all that had happened. Then summoning him, his Lord said to him, You wicked slave, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. Should you not also have mercy on your fellow slave in the same way that I had mercy on you? See, humility is what motivates us to treat others in the same way that God has treated us. We don't want people to get what they deserve. We don't want that for ourselves. Why would we want that for someone else? So don't give them what they deserve. Give them what they need. After all, isn't that what Jesus did for you and for me? 
That's why Paul goes on and tells us to feed them if they're hungry and give them something to drink if they're thirsty. Look at what he says beginning in verse 17. Romans chapter 12, verse 17 says, Never pay back evil to anyone. Respect what is right in the sight of all men. If possible, so far as it depends on you, be at peace with all men. Never take your own vengeance, beloved, but leave room for the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. But if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him a drink. For in doing so, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. I think it's important for us to understand that vengeance is ultimately an issue of control. It's an issue of control. Instead of trusting God to deal with the matter, we want to be like God and deal with it ourselves. That's what vengeance is. We take on the divine responsibility to give someone else what we think they deserve. But the fact of the matter is, that's not our job. We have no right to take on the responsibility that God alone can righteously fulfill. That's why Paul says in verse 19, Never take your own vengeance, but leave room for God's wrath. And this does not mean let God deal with them because he can do a whole lot more harm than you can. Okay, That's not what it's saying here. Because if you look closely at God's wrath, and I encourage you to do so, what you'll find is that there's always a redemptive purpose in mind, even in the midst of his wrath. Yes, there are consequences to sin, but God always leaves room for repentance. Let's take the tribulation as an example. Okay? I use that as an example because what we see in Scripture is that this is a time of wrath unlike the world has ever seen before. But the primary purpose of the tribulation is not to deliver punishment. Look closely. The primary purpose of the tribulation is to call Israel to repentance. Because if you'll look, as we saw in Romans chapter 9 through 11, God's not finished with what he said he would do in the lives of his people, his chosen people. And if you'll look closely at Revelation chapter 7, in the midst of God's wrath, it tells us that there are 144,000, 12,000 from each of the 12 tribes who come to a place of repentance and put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. So as a result of God's life, wrath, God always leaves room for repentance. That's why we leave vengeance to the Lord. Because only He can bring redemption in the presence of evil, mercy in the midst of judgment. Those are divine attributes outside of our own human limitations. By taking matters into our own hands, we become a hindrance to God's grace. Did you hear that? By taking matters into our own hands, wrongfully assuming that we have the right to be God, we become a hindrance to God's grace. So instead of returning evil for evil, Paul says, 
that a transformed life does what is honorable in the sight of all. We take the high road and do the right thing, even when it's the hard thing to do. As an ambassador for Christ, we are on a mission of peace. We cannot control what others do. If you hadn't learned that yet, then just give it time. We cannot control what other people do. But here's what you can control. How you respond to what other people do. Paul urges, if possible, as far as it depends on you, be at peace with all men. Keep in mind, he's still dealing with unbelievers here. Paul is instructing us on how to relate to an unbelieving world with those who do not have that convicting and guiding work of the Spirit indwelling them as we do. Paul says that our only job in the midst of persecution is to put the gospel on display. Not giving others what they deserve, but giving them what they need. So if they're hungry, give them something to eat. If they're thirsty, give them something to drink. Don't give them what they deserve. Give them what they need. And what they need more than anything else is Jesus. They're just operating out of that sinful nature that once enslaved us. The only question is, will, you, will they see Jesus in you? Which doesn't mean you have to be a doormat and take the abuse of other people. I mean, if somebody walks into my house and wants to threaten the life of my wife and kids, I will do everything I can to protect them. But that's not what Paul is talking about here. What he's talking about is enduring persecution by standing up for Christ in a sin-cursed world. He's talking about bad outcomes that result from doing the right thing when everyone else is compromising. In that case, Paul says, do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Display a kindness that supersedes human understanding. Kindness that Paul says will heap burning coals on someone's head. Now, that's a very strange statement, isn't it? Because it sounds like our kindness will be a source of pain in a persecutor's life. And to some degree, that's actually kind of true. Because in ancient times, carrying around coals in all likelihood was an act of contrition. It was evidence of humility when someone confessed that they were in the wrong, that they had made a mistake. And see, that's the ultimate goal, to to see God use grace and kindness in our life to melt even the hardest hearts of those who are against us so that the pain of their sin brings them to a place of seeking God's forgiveness in Christ. That's how we put our purpose into practice. But let me remind you once again what I said in the beginning. This is not possible in our own strength. This is a supernatural obedience. These are evidences of a transformed life. It's the outcome of a spiritual empowered obedience to the perfect will of God. So in the end, It's really not about us. It is all about Christ 
in us. Not about what we do for God, but what God does in us when we surrender to Him. That's what it means to be a living sacrifice. And that's the only way everything that Paul has talked about is even possible in the life of a believer. Because everything Paul instructs us to practice, it's based on what we've already received. None of this is coming from within us on our own. For example, the sacrificial love that we have for others is an overflow of Christ's sacrificial love for us. See, Jesus didn't give us what we deserved, right? He gave us what we need because even while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. When we pray for our enemies, we think about the example that Jesus gave us, that while he was hanging on the cross, he prayed for the ones who put him there. And he said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they are doing. When we are reviled, we think about how Christ did not revile in return. We rejoice in hope, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. The writer of Hebrews encourages us, consider him who endured such hostility from sinners. So that you, who will also endure hostility from sinners, will not grow weary and lose heart. See, Paul is not asking us, and this is key here, Paul is not asking us to do anything for others that Christ hasn't already done for us. We were enemies that have been made friends. We were sinners who have become saints. We were rebels who are now Members of the family of God. In fact, I think we've probably got that golden rule all wrong. You remember the golden rule? Do unto others as you would want them to do unto you. I think that's wrong. I think what it should be is do unto others as Christ has already done for you. That's what it means to put our purpose into practice. That's what it means to be a living sacrifice, which again requires a daily surrender because nobody in this room, myself included, can pull any of the things off that Paul encourages us in this passage apart from the work of the Holy Spirit. This is a supernatural obedience. It's not about you. It's about Christ in you because that's what you want them to see. Amen? Let's pray. Father, thank you for the truth of your word. And Lord, thank you just for the assurance that this is not something that you've called us to do by mustering up our own strength to perform these attributes of obedience in our life because what a frustrating futility that would be. Instead, Father, you call us to those things that you have already fulfilled in us and then they then overflow out of our lives into the lives of those around us. Lord, I do pray that we will cherish the relationships that we have within the family of God, that we will give preference to these relationships beyond just friendships and acquaintances, but family members, that we seek reconciliation, that we seek each other's highest good. We consider how to stir each other towards love and good deeds, that we don't forsake our gathering together. 
And then as a foundation of that love for one another, help us to be faithful to love those around us who are outside of the household of faith, many of which will persecute us and insult us because of our faith. And help us to live in a way that we put the gospel on display so that our goal is not for them to be reconciled to us, but ultimately for them to be reconciled to you. And then that's how we become family with our enemies, brothers and sisters in Christ. Help us to live that out faithfully by the power of your spirit at work within us. We pray this in your name. Amen. Please stand. I think it's important to understand in a lot of our passages this morning that the answer to the prayer of that song is found within the context of Christian community. If we want to be more like Jesus, then we need to live in deep and abiding relationships with one another. Because until we can relate to people who are much like us, how in the world are we going to show the love of Christ to those who are very different than us? Because of who's living within us. So let me encourage you to really take to heart the idea of doing more than just showing up and attending church. Be intentional about engaging with the people of the church, living life together, sharing life together, because our joys are made greater when we share them with each other, and our burdens are made lighter when each helps carry one. It magnifies. It makes good things better and hard things easier. So be faithful to live out the people that God has called us to be. Amen? Let's start today. Let's do that as you leave this morning. Have a great day.